Right now, it's time for Crime and Punishment, our weekly check-in with Casey McNurthney at the King County Prosecutor's Office. And this week, I asked him for an update on a murder case from 2021 in Bellevue, where the uh, sentences have just been handed down. This was the case at the Victoria Cinemas, where there was a 17-year-old boy who was killed, and they couldn't figure out why or what led up to it. He was killed by an 18-year-old guy and was shot once. He died there. Detective Greg Granis and uh, Ray Lofink had to go tell this uh, victim's family about the shooting, and they said it was, you know, just the worst part of the job. And here's Detective Greg Granis from Bellevue explaining uh, that early part of the investigation. Several witnesses were identified later who had actually seen them in the area prior to that, and one of them had even seen a firearm displayed. They were kind of confused about what they were seeing. The suspect had actually had the shotgun out of the car like he was showing it to somebody, and uh, uh, those witnesses didn't put it together that there was something going on until after they heard about the shooting and then we were able to track him down. So I guess it, it always comes back to the same thing we always say, which is if you see something that doesn't look right, say something to somebody like like they say at the airport all the time. If you see something that you think is criminal or is a threat to the public or whatever, call us because we can always investigate and find out that it's not a big deal and that's fine. But, you know, if we if we have the opportunity to intervene before something like this happens, obviously we'd, we'd like the opportunity to do that. So they arrested a suspect. They did. And what helped was uh, Trevor camera footage where they were able to match the vehicle that left the scene with the the driver. They served a search warrant. They found him there. Uh, they found the gun, the side-off shotgun that was used, uh, and they matched his fingerprints to the scene and the car. Um, the hard part is they, they never identified what the motive was, even throughout this you know years-long investigation. But he knew the victim? He did. So it it wasn't random, mm-hmm. but they couldn't tell if, you know, he just read the situation wrong or what was going on. But it wasn't like the victim, you know, was in a big argument with him and antagonized him to do it. It was, it was just, it was a really interesting uh, case where there was never a clear answer for that. So what um, happened to the defendant? So he was convicted. He was convicted of uh, murder, of an illegal gun charge, and also assault. And that assault involved his uh, girlfriend at the time, uh, who also told police that she was very frightened of this defendant. Um, the range that's set by state lawmakers, uh, you know, he, he could have gotten the low end, which is uh, about 12 years for the murder case. But what prosecutors argued for was that 22 years was appropriate, uh, which is the higher end of the range. Uh, and that's what the judge went for uh, just a few days ago. Here's Detective Grant again from Bellevue explaining this case. I honestly can't think of a single mistake that we made in this case. And our department always prides itself on customer service, which is a weird thing to bring up in a case like this. But to be able to go back to the victim's family and say, in, in every way sincere, that we, we gave them our level best, um, I think that's that's the best part about this case. We wish we could give them more. We wish they could ease their burden more. But within the limits of what we are able to provide for them, I think we gave them everything we had. We also have charges filed in this uh, fentanyl trafficking case. Tell us about that. Yeah, remember a, a few months ago when you and I were talking about that record bust in King County where there was 40 pounds of fentanyl that was found? Yeah. There were investigators with the sheriff's office and uh, senior deputy prosecutors with uh, the King County prosecutor's office who said, let's see if we can figure out where that semi-truck that's moving the drugs is coming and going. And, uh, and they spent several months on it, and that led to charges against two more people. And the driver admitted that he was moving this from Southern California to Washington State. They found nearly 10K in cash that he said was his payment for moving. Uh, $10,000? Yeah, $10,000 in the semi. Um, and then they found uh, another 37 pounds of fentanyl. Uh, this is a separate case, but they found 37 pounds of fentanyl, three pounds of uh, meth, and more than a pound and a half of heroin. And went to court and said, this is, you know, 
a, a big problem. And so they argued for $200,000 bail and, and both suspects are held on that amount uh, on a court order and charged. And that, that first suspect from months ago in that separate case is still in the King County Jail on $100,000 bail. We're hearing from Casey McNurthney from the King County Prosecutor's Office. I also wanted to ask Casey about a case that's gotten quite a bit of attention. That one involves the teenagers who have been targeting pedestrians on Aurora Avenue and running them down with their car. Uh, kind of a disturbing case. What's the latest on that? The 15-year-old and 13-year-old who Seattle police arrested in Snohomish County uh, last week were in court on Friday. And the prosecutor's office argued these are folks who need to be held in custody reasonably. And the defense argued against that. And even a juvenile uh, probation counselor asked that one of them be released. Uh, the court said no and, and, and explained the severity of uh, the allegations here. And, and here's a clip from Como for... Uh, covering that on Friday. The 13-year-old girl was a passenger, but prosecutors say the incidents were callous as you hear the crash, then the laughs. It is astonishing that the injuries by both the victims were not more serious, um, and the acts appeared as intentional, intentional as they were random. How did a 13 and 15 year old get a hold of a car? That's a good question. And what's interesting is, is, and I'm sure that'll come out in the investigation. And uh, we anticipate getting the case referred for charges formally on Tuesday. The 15 year old alleged driver, his dad said, "Hey, I think he needs to be held here." You know, and 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 that's unusual. The mom said no, mm-hmm. um, but. That's a good question, and even one of his parents was really concerned about his behavior, so that was interesting to hear from the court hearing. So what's the next step in their case, then? So that we anticipate that that's going to be sent to us on Tuesday for a charging decision, and then that's made, and then it moves forward from there. Are there any laws that prevent someone that young from doing jail time? Just the court's decision. It mm-hmm. really comes down to what their defense attorney could argue, but but if the court finds it appropriate, as they did at the first appearance, then uh, they could. I mean... The flip side of it is, is a, a lot of people think that a 15 year old could be held with adults, you know, in a, a jail like you see out of the movies, but they would still be held in juvenile detention, but they would still be in lockup. Yeah. And I would say, unless you find out how they got access to those cars, unless that situation's changed, there's a public safety threat if they're allowed out of jail. Right. And that's what, what prosecutors argued and what the court said too, that, you know, the court said, this is one of the most, I think the word that she used was terrifying cases that she's, you know, or allegations that she'd seen in, in quite a while. Yeah. Casey McNurthy from the King County Prosecutor's Office. Thank you, Casey. Thanks a lot, Dave. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. It's time to page the doctor. Paging Dr. Cohen. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. You may have heard us talking about intermittent fasting and how they can sometimes help you lose weight, but it turns out that there are additional benefits as well. Benefits such as what, Dr. Cohen? Well, as you mentioned, uh, you know, intermittent fasting and fasting gets talked a lot about for helping people lose weight, but it turns out there's a lot of newer research and science that suggests that fasting may actually also help to reduce inflammation in the body. Now, I've said on this show many times before, inflammation is really the basis of all disease. So anything you can do to help reduce chronic inflammation in your body would, of course, be helpful. And there are numerous scientific experts who suggest that high-calorie diets are associated with a chronic metabolic inflammatory syndrome called metaflammation. Really, this whole 
concept of inflammation being related to diet sort of questions the tradition of the three full meals per day. Uh, and this provides more evidence really that fasting, at least for part of the day, may in fact be good for your body in other ways other than just losing weight loss. Now, the thing is we've got to keep in mind is inflammation in our body does play an important role. For example, if we get sick with a virus or we get sick with you know, bacteria or some other organism, a parasite or whatever, or if we you know injure ourselves, inflammation is an important part of the response to that injury. Inflammation results in wounds healing uh, and inflammation is part of the immune response to get rid of that infection. But the problem is when inflammation becomes chronic and this is what is the basis of all disease, chronic inflammation. So in the process of looking at all this, uh, people have found that you know, if you actually fast, you can actually reduce uh, the amount of inflammation you have in the course of a day. Yeah, it seems counterintuitive that it would help the body by starving it of nutrition temporarily. Right. I think part of the part of the problem is it's largely associated with probably the type of diet we eat and that there's a lot of processed foods and whatnot, uh, but also a lot of excessive calorie consumption uh, over the course of a day. And that leads to the excessive uh, inflammation or the chronic metabolic inflammatory syndrome, again, which they call metaflammation. And it turns out in this recent study, what they did is they actually fasted a group of people. Uh, they they limited them to uh, 500 uh, calories a day, and then they fasted for 24 hours, and then they consumed another 500 calories. So, in, in, in many ways, they didn't eat much for three days. 500 calories at 24. Yeah, hours. that's a that's a pretty severe diet. Yeah, it, it is. But what they found was is that after they ate their first meal, even though it wasn't a lot of calories, they had an increase in the inflammatory markers. But then. When they fasted, uh, then they ate a second meal, so they had this long fast, and, uh, and, and the inflammatory markers dropped after that meal. So the fasting resulted in a drop after eating the exact same meal. So first meal, rise in inflammatory markers, fasting, eat a second meal, drop in the inflammatory markers. So it's really interesting because uh, although this was done in an extreme way with low-calorie diets on either end that were very fixed in a long period of fasting, the point was to demonstrate, in fact, that there was a measurable change in the inflammatory markers. And what they're suggesting from this is if diet can inf influence inflammation in that way, well, maybe by fasting uh, intermittently, uh, we can actually reduce chronic inflammation. What's that old saying? Starve a fever, feed a cold, or is it? Starve a cold and feed a fever, I forget. I always get it screwed up. Yeah, I mean, some of these folk things are actually, uh, you know, true. When you, when you look at them a little closer, at least you could explain them uh, in some cases. You know, is an apple a day keep the doctor away just because you're eating fiber and, you know, you're not getting constipation? I mean, who knows? But, you know, these kind of sayings actually probably have some basis in, in reality. Um, I think that 
What's really interesting, though, here is that inflammation has really strongly been tied to uh, to cancer risk, and we we know for sure that chronic inflammation occurs uh, with conditions like obesity, and has definitely been associated with certain types of cancer, as we've talked about uh, before. And in addition, there's other kind of diseases that people who are chronically inflamed, like have ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, you know, bowel diseases, uh, that those patients are have an increased risk of developing col- colorectal cancer. So, you know, local inflammation in an organ like your colon that's chronic can result in, uh, in, in cancer and put you at higher risk. But it is strongly suggestive that, uh, that we can, in fact, uh, affect the amount of inflammation we have in our body uh, by, um, by, you know, having a period of fasting in, in, in our day. So I think that for the time being, that's where it's most likely to be recommended that your doctor's going to say, you know, go on a diet, intermittently fast, lose weight. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. Dr. Cohen, thanks very much. Right now, it looks like last week's response to the attack on U.S. troops in Jordan didn't work because there's been another Houthi attack on a base housing U.S. troops in Syria. For more details, we talk with CBS military analyst Jeff McCausland. Well, as you say, there have been some attacks against U.S. bases in the region following the large-scale attack the United States did in reprisal back on Friday, where we hit 85 different targets. Of course, the obvious question is, are these by the same group, Qatar Hezbollah, that we think struck Tower 22, or is this some other group? I'm sure the Pentagon is trying to analyze that right now. Also trying to analyze battle damage assessment to conclude whether or not the targets we struck were neutralized, whether they be struck again. And over the weekend, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan did a number of interviews in which he said, you know, that the attacks on Friday by the United States were the first step, and we might see subsequent air, air attacks by the U.S. over the days to come. It looks like net net of it all that we're now involved in somewhat of an air campaign to neutralize these groups and their ability to strike our forces in the region. Yeah. The, now, our initial reprisal hit, hit how many targets, did you say? 85 targets. 85? Of they used 85 different targets, yeah. And, and we used uh, not only F-18s coming off of aircraft carriers, but they, we actually flew two B-1B bombers from Dias Air Force Base in Texas that flew all the way over, dropped their ordnance, were refueled, and flew back just to send an additional message of the capabilities of the United States. And they, But they were still able to pull out. How, how many installations do these guys have? Well, they got quite a number. There's no doubt about it. Like all across the region for these secure groups, which are not insignificant in numbers. They have large numbers of storage facilities for munitions. And, of course, you're also talking about hitting command and control, which would be headquarters, barracks, training areas, and the like. Is there going to come a time, because there have been demands for this, where it's not enough to go after these outposts, but you have to go uh, after the sponsor, which I'm told is Iran? Certainly, it would seem that we're inching in that direction, not only in response to these attacks in Syria and Iraq. At the same time, over the weekend, we conducted a series of attacks against the Houthis down in Yemen as they continue to fire missiles, drones, et cetera, against commercial shipping as well as U.S. naval vessels. We know as well the Houthis are also a client proxy, if you will, of Iran. A lot of the drones, munitions, et cetera, that they are launching uh, are provided to them by Iraq. I think it's important to underscore that these groups are backed by Iran, there's no doubt. <laughs> that doesn't necessarily mean they're directed by Iran. They're not, Iran is necessarily you know, directing subsequent attacks as occurred over the weekend or the attacks uh, that hit Tower 22 and killed three Americans.
Now, are we just going after their their land-based installations, or are we going after their supply lines, which I, I imagine, I mean, if you got that many bases, they're getting shipments of weapons from somewhere, right? Yeah, no, we're going through for all those things, because we remember that one thing the IRGC, Iran Revolutionary Guard Corps, does in creating this network is they move large numbers of weapons across the, re- across the region, some in support of different groups that they support in Syria. Some they move all the way to Lebanon because they're a main backer of Hezbollah that operates in southern Lebanon and is firing missiles and artillery at uh, Israel almost on a daily basis. So they're, they're supporting all those things. And, you know, the other thing it seems to me is interesting is Sullivan said over the weekend in his interviews you know, that, that there, are, there are things that will be seen, there are things that will be hit that will be unseen, which caused me to ponder whether or not the United States may also be executing some form of cyber attack, particularly against the Iranians, in retaliation for the strike on Tower 22. We're hearing from CBS military, to military analyst Jeff McCausland. So what would success look like for this operation? Well, of course, when you achieve your objective, which is get them to cease conducting attacks against American forces in Iraq and Syria with respect to these Iraqi Shiite militia groups, and when we see the Houthis ceasing their particular attacks on commercial shipping. But all this, of course, which makes it enormously complex, it comes back to the ongoing conflict in in the Gaza Strip. The Secretary of State, Blinken, is on his way to the Middle East to go to Qatar, Egypt, Israel, and elsewhere in an effort to broker a ceasefire, an extended ceasefire, between Hamas and Israel, but might also gain the release of 100 or more hostages. And were we to achieve that kind of ceasefire, then I think we might also expect these particular attacks to cease. Aha! So an easier way to stop the attacks would be for some success in the, the Israel-Gaza war. And I'm not sure I'd call it easier, Dave. <laughs> these are pretty difficult negotiations. On the one hand, Hamas wanting a large number of fighters, thousands of them in Israeli jails, to be released as well. And on the other side, of course, Benjamin Netanyahu, prime minister of Israel, still saying that his number one goal is the absolute total destruction of Hamas. So as a consequence, two sides may not be totally in agreement uh, on the kind of ceasefire and how long the ceasefire might might last. CBS military consultant Jeff McCausland. Jeff, thank you. Thanks, Dave. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. After losing his wife, a Vietnam veteran struggling with depression and PTSD, found inspiration to help others. Here's CBS's Steve Hartman. After his retirement, and especially after his wife died, 76-year-old Danny Chauvin of Waveland, Mississippi, says he had way too much time on his hands. If you're alone with just your thoughts, does your mind wander places? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That you don't want to go? Yep. That's when stuff comes back to you. Danny served in the Army in Vietnam. He's been treated for depression and PTSD. But to keep his sanity, he knew he also had to keep busy. But how? And that's when Danny realized one of the things he missed most about his wife was all the little handyman jobs he used to do for. So a few months ago, he posted a note on Facebook. If there's any honeydew jobs that you can't handle, I'm willing to help. And it spread, spread like wildfire. Thanks for coming to help me out. So now every day, no problem. sometimes four times a day, Danny fixes the hole in his heart by fixing just about everything else. He's working on fixing a closet door. And then he hung my porch swing. He put in a shower and he did my screen door. <laughs> and the best part? What does he charge for all this? The price. 
zero. Nothing. George does nothing. He showed much kindness to people. We can fix that up. Most of the people Danny helps are women, most single or widowed. They call him the honeydew dude and say he's just about the only guy they know willing to help with these small jobs. And obviously, no one's going to match his price point. In fact, when the work is done, only thing he takes is a picture, a reminder that he is not alone in his struggle. Right now, i got a lot of friends, a lot of friends. Is the PTSD any better now that you've started doing this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what I was looking for. Cross finding happiness off the honey-do list. Voila. Okay, no. No problem. <laughs> That's Steve Hartman reporting. Now joining us from the Jenner's List Show, Chris Lloyd-Teen, who's... Yeah. Whose job was to stay up all night watching the Grammys in her pajamas. I wasn't even my pajamas. I I even stayed up, up way beyond. You know what? I wish I'd worn a, a, a sequin gown <laughs> because it was worthy of that. It is fun to see the fashion. Oh, it was fun to see the fashion. But this was a night where the music reigned supreme. And so did women. Yes. And it was there's, it was very uh focused on the women who had a banner year when it came to music and i loved every single minute of it i got chills when i heard tracy chapman made an appearance she's so quiet so you just yes (laughs) and to see her tearing up a little bit while she sang i was bawling i know because she partnered with um luke combs who who i'm not a big country music fan but that guy is is full of talent and he gave so much um respect to her mm-hmm. and the audience was just mesmerized i mean just if you want to hear just a little bit more of that because i honestly i can't get enough of it but uh, i mean what was it 1988 when that was a hit mm-hmm. and you barely hear, have heard and from her i think it was just last year that he brought it back yes yeah, and it's been why. a huge yeah. uh, hit for him um but also it was a big night. Taylor Swift, of course, yes. she made history. So she won now her fourth Grammy for Album of the Year. She also took a moment uh, with uh, when she won, I think it was Best Pop uh, Song of the Year. She took that time to announce to all her crazy fans, mm. I'm included now, uh, yeah. that, she, <laughs> that she has a new album coming up. How she's been working she on keep pumping I out don't music? Know. Cause you know she's writing that music. You know that she's part of that composing. You know, like she's unstoppable. Exactly. But uh, the other, one, Billie Eilish. Did yeah, you watch course. Barbie? Yeah. Did you like the movie Barbie? I, I love the movie. I love the movie Barbie. So she won what uh, for what was I made for? Yeah, she she also won. She won uh, Song of the Year, and uh, then Miley Cyrus. <laughs> she was fun. Okay. She was having you, a good time. You, if, if you don't look, there's two things that you need to watch. Actually, three. The Tracy Chapman and Luke Combs, Joni Mitchell, which I'll get to in a second. But Miley Cyrus, who, if you aren't, where she was married to um, Liam. Liam, right? I, I was like, one of the Hemsworth brothers. Right, exactly. <laughs> one of the brothers. And apparently it was a really bad breakup. It was everywhere last Valentine's Day. Oh my gosh, she was calling out people. But 
when I say she looked hot, she looked hot. I know. I mean, she was just, it was almost like, Dave, I'm, am I, I saw, making you uncomfortable? No, I just, I just <laughs> think of her as a kid still. Yeah, she I know, is. It's like the, yeah. Hannah, Hannah Montana is gone. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this was, a, this was a woman who, then she kind of brought in some Tina Turner-like moves. I know. I was like, how is there nothing jiggling on that body? <laughs> Jealous. <laughs> she okay. looks good. Chris she's is just like, fit. okay, wait a minute. She's fit. Yeah, she's very fit. She's been working on that. Uh, but the other thing, too, is at 80 years old, Joni Mitchell came out with Brandi Carlisle. And she, I didn't realize this was the first time she was performing at the Grammys. And do you remember that? Uh, uh, both sides. Oh, yeah. Now. Okay, well, okay, wow. so so he, yeah. he, here, here's a little bit of it. Okay, well, that, I, I didn't give you enough because no. uh, she she sang that, and again, teary eyed. She did it with Brandy Carlisle, Seattle's own, who's one of my favorites. And Dave, you and I could appreciate this because right now, this whole passage of time, oh yeah, people, it, it's it's like in the forefront of my mind. Well, that song was my college years, right? I mean, Joni Mitchell. I've got Joni Mitchell albums. There on you go. Vinyl still. Okay, so, and yeah. she here she is, eighty years old. She's had some serious health battles. She had an aneurysm that yes. rendered her unable to speak for a long time. So to exactly. be up on stage Colleen. with her cane because she also suffered from polio and and singing, it, it did feel like almost going to church because you saw Beyonce and you saw Meryl Streep and everybody was just still and teary eyed. Like she is the voice. Yes. For everyone. Yeah. yeah. Yes. She's incredible. Yes. There was a woman who um, her husband uh, used his time when he won an award. Oh, that JC. would be JC. <laughs> who called out the awards folks for like, hey, I've got the wife, Beyonce, who has won the most Grammys and yet has never won a Best Album Award. I, I was wondering if he was going to have his... We're going to talk about that on the G and Ursula okay. show. I was wondering if he was going to have his own Kanye moment. Yeah, Kanye, it didn't okay. happen. That's good. But... Um, I'll also say that Trevor Noah was fantastic as the host. Yeah, Ursula with G at 9 o'clock on Cairo News Radio. It's Matt Markovich, right? That's right, Matt Markovich. He's talking go. about taxpayer-subsidized health insurance for striking workers and what bills are dead or on life support during this short session. I thought you were going to talk about uh, fasting at the legislature there. Well, I was I was teasing to the end of the show, but okay. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people not eating right now because they're nervous about their bills. That's uh, for sure. Yeah, so just to give you an update, I thought today we would talk about some of those bills that died uh, because we're halfway through. It's day twenty nine out of. 60-day legislative session. And let's talk about the striking workers' health insurance first. Uh, You heard a little bit about it just a few minutes ago, but I want to go a little bit more in depth because this is the first vote, and this is why I picked it. This is the first vote where the vote was right down party lines. They've been voting on bills in the House and Senate uh, pretty much 97 to nothing or 49 to nothing. Uh, 98 to nothing, 49 to nothing. And it, and everybody's in agreement. It's kumbaya period. But this is the first one where there was actually some real debate. Went on party lines, 30 Democrats, 19 Republicans said no. And they passed and grossed Senate Bill 5632, which allows striking workers to access subsidized health insurance through the state's health benefit exchange. The program aims to provide support for employees who lose their employer-provided health care <clears throat> 
excuse me, due to uh, a labor dispute, such as a strike or a lockout. Now, the bill's sponsor, Karen Kaiser from Des Moines, she's a Democrat, she said it would provide a safety net to people who have no access to any other health insurance. This does not require the state to pay for the health insurance. It simply allows the health benefit exchange to have an open enrollment time for an individual who is on strike. But there is some money that does come from the state, obviously from the federal government, so it's subsidized by taxpayers. Individuals would have to self-attest regarding the loss of their health care coverage because of a labor dispute. Now, all 19 Republicans, like Senator Curtis King, voted no. We shouldn't be offering benefits to have this kind of care. We're just incentivizing them in some respects to go out on strike. Now, the implementation of this bill is contingent upon the availability of state funding, like I was talking about. It does require some state taxpayer money specifically appropriated for this purpose. And so far, that funding has not been approved. And that kind of leads right into my whole segment here about what bills are dying, because if it doesn't get funding, that's one of the reasons why these policy bills don't just die. They don't get state funding. That's how many bills die. Now, today is the last day when bills that cost money to uh, by the state need to get approval from their budget committees to move forward. Bills concerning the transportation must also be passed out of transportation committees by today. And I was trying to think of Dave and Colleen, like an, a visual analogy of what's happening at the legislature. So when it, when it begins, imagine there's hundreds of racehorses lined up at the gate at the start of a race. Um, and when the bell goes off, not all the gates open. And when the gate opens, that means that bill's going to get a hearing. So there are a lot of bills that were pre-filed. That's the term they called. Good ideas. We've talked about them. But the gate never opened. They never got a hearing, and they can't move on. So right now we are at a point where a lot of bills, the gate has opened, but they never got they got a hearing, but never passed out of committee. I mean, and there's some fun ones. I mean, I'll, I'll just touch upon this. I mean, we never we never talked about the state stone, which is what I I thought was a great little story uh, because uh, there's a dispute between the city of Wilkinson and the city of Tonino about which is the best stone, uh, a sandstone. We the, there was a bill about the state clam. Uh, a razor clam, huh. um, but that never even got a hearing. That's crazy. Uh, Whatever happened to bipartisanship? I know. I mean, they can't agree on anything. But these are, it's a short session, so a lot of these ideas, they get thrown out like a horse, the gate never opened, and they're just sitting there at the starting line. So, and one of those bills we did talk a lot about, Dave, which is uh, SB 2150, which would have taken Donald Trump's name off the presidential ballot, mm-hmm. um, and as well as maybe even the, the primary ballot. Um, that was democratically sponsored. That never got a hearing. So, not surprised so, at all about that, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and feel free to weigh in on all these. I'm just going to list some of these Go that ahead. are we talked about. You know, there was a HB fifty seven seventy three, which would have increased state funding for public defenders in cities and counties. Now, if passed, the state would have covered half the costs of the city and county public defense services by 2028. It was a bipartisan, mm-hmm. but that never got a hearing uh, in the sen- in the Senate. Because, well, that was a lot of money, and we know there's a big backlog of cases throughout the state. So, well, so what happens bill. in these cases in, in areas that can't afford it then? I mean, uh, big cities, I'm sure, can probably foot the bill, but what about smaller places? That, you're exactly right. Uh, but here's an opportunity. Could the, should the state pony up some money on that? Well, it didn't even get a hearing, which I was surprised. And it was a bipartisan bill. Uh, there was a bill to create a 25-foot buff, 25 buffer zone 
uh, where people could not protest others gathering signatures for a referendum or initiative. Uh, mm-hmm. Senate Bill 5820, that was a Republican-sponsored. It got a hearing but never passed out of its committee, so it's dead. And there was a magic mushroom bill, the legalize, an attempt to legalize magic mushrooms. The active ingredient in psychedelic mushrooms is uh, cybocillin. Senate Bill 5977, uh, Democrat out of uh, Shoreline, Jesse Solomon proposed this and got no hearing. There was a bill to ban TikTok in Washington state, HB uh, 2435. Again, a Republican-led bill, never got a hearing. Uh, there was a, and this is a fairly big one, um, Senate Bill 5961 to impose statewide rent control or rent stabilization, as the Democrats call it, limiting the increases to 5% a year. Some said it was 15. This is on the Senate side. Mm-hmm. That died? Uh, that never got out of its committee. So, but there was a bill on the House side uh, that would have uh, still alive, and it could come up later this session. And then there was a hate crimes hate crimes bounty bill, which we talked about. It would pay up to two thousand dollars to people to report uh, their neighbors for bias incidents. This is Senate Bill fifty four twenty seven. I hadn't heard about that one. What, what about the uh, small gas engines bill? <laughs> that died. Nope. Democrat sponsored. That would have banned leaf blowers and things like that. Yeah. I mean, well, but, you know, cities like Seattle are already moving toward that. But this would be a statewide ban on small gas motors. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, never got a hearing. So uh, putting a sex offender on the sex offender policy board didn't make it. Letting prisoners who've served time vote on juries and run for public office. Nope, that's dead. And uh, there was a bill promoting artificial intelligence by protecting uh, by uh, protecting against algorithmic discrimination, which is a new term, democratically sponsored, never made out of committee. But no uh, funding for state ferries, no fixing highways, no bridge. <laughs> I, mean, I, I can think of so many issues well, that needed work this well, session, these, Matt. And well, these, these are bills. bills. I'm, I, I, that's for tomorrow. We're going to okay. talk about bills that are going to go through because today's a big cutoff. So these are bills that basically I wanted to throw out there that, that were talked about or not talked about, but were proposed and never made it. Those big bills, like the ferries, uh, transportation, the Climate Commitment Act money, that's all later in the session. And it will come down to what they call the 11th hour bill, which is some, always going to be a surprise. I'm trying to guess which one it is. What bill will be brought straight to the House, won't go through the committee. It's like the racehorse left the gate, went all the way to the finish line, and then that's, it just showed up at the finish line. And that's what the House and the Senate can do. They can bring a bill forward right to the floor and vote on it. Last session, it was the assault weapons bill. Mm-hmm. Never went to a committee hearing. and went right to the floor, and it passed. So we're waiting to see which one that will be, and I'm going to put my bet on that tomorrow. Okay. It's time to wave the checkered flag here. Thank you, Ben. That's right. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.